We're going to study Hebrews chapter 13, but first I want to read something to you. I'm going to show it to you. What I'm showing you is a video that says, Finding Faith in Christ. All right, somebody gave me this. Okay, Finding Faith in Christ. And here's what it says on the back here. His life was like no other. His divine mission and perfect love bring the blessings of heaven today just as surely as when he walked on the earth. Experience the power, majesty, and love of Jesus Christ through the eyes of one who once doubted. Feel the truth as Thomas shares his firm conviction that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, our beloved Redeemer. Ponder these scriptural events so that you may believe in him and have everlasting life. This comes from the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. All right? That is, this is a Mormon video. And people read these things. Oh, that sounds like Christianity. This is, this is from a cult. A non-Christian cult. The Mormons. And they have a different definition of every single word they use. All right? Now... That's exactly what's going on today within evangelicalism. Every word is being redefined. And so, I, now, just to show you, I did a little research this week. Because I mentioned this last week, and I thought it would be a good object lesson just for our why our evangelism nowadays needs to be very specific about who Christ is and what he did. And I've been urging that sort of preaching, both in writing and in my sermons, and what we actually do for some time, because I realize that what's being said in most evangelistic settings doesn't give enough people, people enough information to differentiate between Christianity and whatever idea they already have about Jesus. And if they were a Mormon and they hear most evangelical messages, they'd have no reason to think that there's anything wrong with what they already believe. So here's some of the Mormons. But now let me show you some stuff. I went on to a, a Mormon blog where some Mormons are uh, giving their, their internally what they actually believe these things are and comparing them to what we believe. All right, so this is from the Mormons themselves. The, the, the blog said, did Christ pay for our sins? And then um, here is the Mormon answer. They say our answer. That's the Mormons because it came from their site. And their answer, that's us, Christians. What is sin? Our answer. Since the laws of heaven are independent of God, we must define sin independent of Him. Sin is what keeps us from progressing spiritually according to eternal laws. Unquote. That's Mormon answer. Their answer. Our answer. <laughs> sin is what makes God keep us from heaven. Well, it's not exactly what, but it's true. All right. Sin is what makes God keep us from heaven. So they're rejecting that idea. So when we say our sins separate us from God, the Mormons say, no, that's not true. That's not the way it is. All right, second here, um, who do we sin against? Our answer, Mormon answer. Although God is very sad when we sin, we are really sinning against ourselves. Though we may hurt other people and affect them, we are only retarding our own spiritual progression. Unquote. Mormon answer. Our answer, they call it their answer, Sin is a crime against God, and we will be sorry. It is rebellion against Him, and what He has decided is right. They reject that. They reject that sin is rebellion against God. All right. Now, why is punishment required? Mormon answer. There must be consequences to our actions in order to preserve true agency, meaning our free will, as opposed to illusionary agency. 
Our spiritual damnation is not so much a punishment as a consequence for which we are our own judges. Unquote. That's Mormons. Here is what they say we believe. I'm not sure. To motivate us to do better? To scare us? See, they, they're making fun of our belief of punishment. They, in other words, they don't have a, a doctrine of divine justice. That the wages of sin is death. That God declared that the soul that sins must die. They don't even have that doctrine. At least this person on this blog doesn't. Um, another question. Why can't our sins simply be forgiven without punishment? Our answer. Mormon answer. Laws of agency and justice require it independently of God. By the way, that's very much like Finney. Finney's doctrine is quite close to the Mormons on that point in his moral government heresy. Um, our answer as Christians, I have no idea. God created the whole scenario and has all power. Why can't he? That's what they're caricaturizing our view. Why is punishment required? Or why can't our sins be forgiven without punishment? Well, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Payment has to be paid. God cannot lie. He said that the soul of sin will die. So, uh, who, let me do one more. Well, no, two more. Who pays our debt? Here's what the Mormons say. We do. Unless Christ willingly offers to do it for us, their answer, God himself does. This destroys the whole metaphor. We owe a creditor, but we can't pay the price ourselves. Therefore, a mediator steps in pays the price for us. But in this tradition, the mediator is the creditor. We have accomplished, we haven't accomplished anything by all the letting, at all by letting him suffer. So they're rejecting our view of the atonement. Yeah, and the Trinity. Uh, how are we forgiven? Mormon answer. Christ accepts the negative consequences of our actions of his own free will and choice. Their answer. God punishes an innocent man in our stead. So the Mormons reject every piece of Christian doctrine about the atonement, but their video says Jesus um, uh, is the Son of God and, re- and He's our Redeemer. So they give you Christian talk on the outside so the people raised in church don't know that they're being lured into a cult, because but when you get in, all the definitions are different. Yes. And that's in keeping with a long line of deceptions that the Mormon Church does, uh, worldly deceptions, like the Mormon Tabernacle Fire, the the brass the brass uh, organ pipes. Yeah. They're not wood. They're not brass. They're wood, painted brass to look like wood. Oh. The new ones are brass. The the uh, the pews, they're pine painted to look like oak. And then whenever you <coughs> see the Mormon Tabernacle Fire on TV, it's huge. You would think it's the size of the Astrodome. It's not. It's about maybe three times the size of the sanctuary. So everything is a deception. From, okay. <laughs> so, now, why, why am I spending a little bit of time on this? I brought up the topic last week when we were talking about the doctrine of Christ. Jesus Christ, yesterday to say, uh, the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.8. Is that it's absolutely essential in our evangelizing to define who Christ is and what he did in the biblical doctrine of atonement. Because if you're witnessing somebody, maybe they're a Mormon. And if you just use this Christian lingo that a lot of people use, they think, okay, yeah, we agree. We're, we're, we're on the same page. They don't, ha- they don't have any of the same definitions. And so you, we, we have to preach the whole doctrine of Christ and the atonement to evangelize. 
We can't just say, accept Jesus and you'll be a Christian. And the Mormons say, we accept Jesus. Jehovah Witnesses will say they accept Jesus. Catholics will say they accept Jesus. So who are we evangelizing? So, that's why I'm picky about this. And it's the same thing with definitions within the evangelical church. Brian Flynn and I did two hours or a couple hours of radio recording yesterday. Not quite two hours when we're done with the whole thing. Uh, we're, we're doing a series of radio shows based on the chapters of my book on the Purpose Driven Movement. And we were doing chapter nine yesterday. And we had a, we were discussing the, the, the rebuttals that are coming back, okay? And I got an email forwarded to me from somebody that was upset that anybody would disagree with Rick Warren. And the email said, Rick Warren says the five purposes of the church are worship, evangelism, discipleship, ministry, and evangelism. What pastor anywhere could say that's a bad thing? And so my, I, I said a response to it. I said... Every one of those is totally redefined and doesn't mean what the Bible says. It's just he's doing the same thing the Mormons do. And for example, worship. What's worship? It's having entertaining music that people like to hear with quasi-Christian words to it. Certainly isn't about the blood and about the kind of songs that we sing here. It's it's venues that have the style of music that they like, you know, whatever you might be. Do you country western, you want rock, you want I don't know what all venues they have based on entertaining people. That's not worship. Well, what about discipleship? Who could be against that? Well, the discipleship is the shape program. What's the shape program? Well, you study yourself. Okay? Your aptitudes, your experiences. You've got to write out all the experiences you had in life. You've got to go take the Myers-Briggs indicator uh, based on the theories of Carl Jung. And you've got to go do... Uh, all this stuff to study yourself. Well, sinners love to study self; that's their favorite topic. But what does the what does Jesus say discipleship is? Unless you deny yourself and take up your cross, you cannot be my disciple. So, is there a difference between denying self and studying self? Well, what about um, what about uh, ministry? What about ministry? What of course we believe in ministry. Well, what is ministry in the purpose driven movement? It's take an oath to serve a system. And to help Rick Warren implement his peace plan. Alright? And so on and on and on. So all five of those purposes are redefined, and then they put it out there and say, well, who could be against that? That's no different than what the Mormons do. They, they take all the terms we already know, put them out there, and say, well, why would you be against that? And so, beloved, we need to go to the Bible for our definitions, or we don't know what we're joining. Okay, so, and uh, either Jesus Christ de- defines the church and defines evangelism and defines worship and, de- and defines discipleship, or some guy in the 21st century defines it based on what people want to hear now. And so, uh, we did a radio show on this Saturday, and I, it'll be interesting to see what happens when it comes out. I think it'll, it'll have an, hopefully have an impact on some people. So, point is, find out what the terms mean. And that's what we do when we study the Bible. We dig into it to find out. Yes? Even preaching means something different. I ran into a person and asked them where, they asked where I was going to church, I asked them where they were going. He goes, oh, we're going to, man, can they, he preach, man, can he preach. I said, oh. I said, well, our pastor really is good. He can really preach and we preach verse by verse through the Bible. Oh, but no, we know Bible. 
We're no, a senior no, sons and have no Bibles at church. There's no Bible. There's no Bible. And I was like, so, so that's not preaching. That's giving an entertaining speech. Anecdotes. And he said, oh, the worship. They have talent. But I know this church, and they hired, they went to all the local churches and hired the best um, people. So they hired the guitarists, they hired everybody. And so they are an excellent musical group. Okay. So it is. It's like, oh my it, but, it's, but it's totally redefined. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there you go. So, <laughs> buyer beware. Um, define terms. Otherwise, you have newspeak. Uh, somebody redefines the terms and puts them out there. They sound familiar. They sound inviting. They, we put down our uh, guard, and then we get deceived. I'm going to write one on the uh, emergent movement and call it Undefining Christianity. Undefining Christianity. Hey, I like that idea. Wow. We got a title. Can a book be far away? <laughs> that's a great. Hey, that's good. That's a good one, Patrick. Okay, let's get to our text here. Let me give you an overview. We're coming to a part of Hebrews that uh, is, how would you say it? It's a little, it seems difficult, but you have to just understand the Jewish use of analogies based on how they uh, want to understand things. And I think the meaning can be discerned here clear, clearly enough. But when we first read this, it might be scratch your head a little bit about where is the author of Hebrews going. So let me give you an overview and give you an interpretation of the passage. And then we'll get into the details to see if we can defend that interpretation as being what the author meant. Okay, so to do so, I'm going to read a paragraph, and then we'll talk about this. Starting with verse 7, that's where the paragraph begins. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest is an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the camp. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Now, it seems, what's he getting at? And so let me give you what, what the results of a lot of study that I did on this, and I'll be reading some quotes from, from scholars. What he is saying is this, that we should stick with Jesus Christ according to the sound teachings which we've already received about him, and not go back to the old covenant practices. That's the basic idea. Now, the thing about foods, and there's a whole bunch of quotes that I've found on this from Jewish sources, that there was a belief that any meal that they partook of giving thanks to God was a source of grace. That was a Jewish belief. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is just having meals with your Jewish relatives and friends isn't the source of grace. Grace isn't found from the meal. And, and so I'm going to talk about that one today. And then the analogy is this. According to, on the Day of Atonement, right, and he's still thinking about foods, and they're thinking their eating and their fellowship meal was going to bring grace to them. 
whereas the author of Hebrews points only to the person of Christ is ultimately where anybody outside of Christ, you're not going to get grace from any activity. All right. Now, uh, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, when they, when they slaughtered the sacrificial animals, the blood was brought inside the veil to the, in the holiest place and sprinkled on the mercy seat. But the, the sacrificed victims could not be eaten by the priests on the Day of Atonement. But it was prescribed, and we'll be looking this up, that the bodies of the sacrificed animals would be taken outside the camp and burned to ensure that they couldn't be um, ate. All right? Because they weren't supposed to be on the Day of Atonement. So it's an allusion to the Day of Atonement. Now, the point that he's making, the main point is this, is that Jesus fulfills the Day of Atonement in many different ways. Earlier in Hebrews, we saw other ways he fulfills the Day of Atonement through his blood. But the blood was sprinkled inside the holiest place. In Hebrews, it says it's brought into the actual heavenly tabernacle, a sprinkled once for all. Now, the body of Jesus, he died outside the camp, and so there's an analogy of him being a sacrificial victim outside the camp. And then the therefore that we must go outside the camp to meet Jesus is uh, kind of a Jewish uh, analogy of saying the camp now is Jerusalem, or actually Judaism, all right, and their whole system, their whole legal system that was given by Moses, that's inside the camp. So they're saying, so the author of Hebrews is saying to find salvation, you've got to go outside the camp. In other words, leave this old covenant practice. Leave this whole system and go outside the camp to Jesus and find salvation there. That's the point of his sermon. Now, to us, this argumentation is hard to follow. But it's kind of a Jewish midrash type of way they did things. And uh, I've got a whole bunch of great quotes and material on this. I had to do a lot of studying to figure it out myself, frankly. But um, if you get the over, I wanted to give you the overview so we don't get lost in the details. And then go back and dig into the details here. So I hope that that helps you interpret this. Now, let's go to verse 9, which is the passage that we want to dig into uh, this morning. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who are thus occupied were not benefited. Now, remember, the, the bigger context is staying with Jesus and the true teachings about Christ that were delivered by the apostles. All right, And so, a strange teaching, now the word for strange in the Greek is xenos, where we get our word xenophobia, and it means foreign or foreigner, depending on the context. So, uh, these teachings that may have been very familiar to these Jewish Christians in their Jewish setting, in their old covenant setting, they're considered strange by the writer of Hebrews, because they're strange in regard to Christ and what he's taught. Right? They're foreign from in the context of what had been delivered once for all by the apostles of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 or 6 or thereabout. Okay, that's the background. Always keep that in mind. The, the, the body of confirmed true doctrine has been delivered to us. And anything outside of that is xenos. A stranger, a foreigner, doesn't belong in inside the camp of Christianity, so to speak. 
Now, it isn't based on race. It's not thinking about literally, but figuratively, it would be a stranger. And so one of those traditions that was uh, very much grounded in Judaism, in which uh, William Lane gives quote after quote after quote after. I mean, I, I have pages of commentary just on one verse here, giving proving that because this has been difficult historically to interpret, and so Lane gives tons of material to substantiate his interpretation, is that it was actually true that the Jewish idea at this time was that every meal they shared was a means of grace. And as they would bless the Lord, and they would, and, and some of this is in the Old Testament, okay, and has some legitimacy under the Old Covenant. And so they would, the strange teachings would be that if you go back with your Jewish brethren and have the Jewish meals together in the traditional way that you always did, you'd find grace from God. And the author of Hebrews says, no. You've got to go outside the camp to Jesus to find grace. And you're not going to find grace through meals or foods, but you're going to find grace through Jesus Christ and what He's given us. Alright? Now, um, it says, For the heart is strengthened by grace. So here we have, again, means of grace. And I'm going to cite uh, William Lane on this. Um, so it says here, do not be carried away by, by very strange teaching. The point here is that the one who's not grounded in solid doctrine is likely to be carried away. The antithesis is between being carried away or strengthened by grace. If you look at this, carried away is the, is the thing that's bad. Strengthened by grace is the thing that's good. So you have an antithetical parallelism, and which we've talked about before. We're not this, but this. Okay. Now, what we see here is that the only way, in my opinion, that the flock will not be carried away by strange teachings is if the people that are leading the flock are careful to feed them only sound doctrine. Because here, in the context, it says, remember those who spoke the Word of God to you. The idea was that you had, at one time, apostolic ordained leadership that taught the true doctrines of Christ and His apostles, and you have that as a benchmark, so to speak. You have that as a solid foundation that you know that is confirmed that it's really from God. And so whatever strange teaching might come, like the idea that, well, if you just have a meal, you'll get grace from that, whatever meal it is, uh, you would know that's false if you are grounded in Jesus Christ as the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you knew the true doctrines that have been taught uh, to you by people that were reliable, and they had good evidence that what they taught was really from God. Now, in, in uh, contrast, if that's not the case, a person can be very well carried away by strange teachings. And this has been the case throughout the history of the church. And a good study of church history will convince you that the ability to be deceived is always waiting right at the door. The number of different deceptions that arose in church history are unbelievable. And they get recycled every so many years. Because Satan is the liar and the father of lies. For example, if you want to do a little study in church history, just study the Christological heresies 
of the first three centuries, the first couple centuries of the church, up until the fourth century, when they finally, in, during, through church councils, they sat down and hammered out, this is the true doctrine of Christ, and we won't accept anything other than this. And that doctrine that they handed out, we still accept, not because they handed it out, the church, but because it is really what the Bible teaches. All right, these definitions that were done, like the definition of Chalcedon. But before that, there, when I was studying theology, I had to, for a test, memorize 12 different, how many were there? There's like 12 Christological heresies. I can't, I'll tell you what, I'm getting older, I can't remember them all right now. But I know there was Arianism was the biggest one, that Christ was a created being. There is this one that claimed that monophysitism, Christ only had one nature rather than two, fully human and fully divine. And there was Nestorianism, and I can't remember what that is. We used to have little mnemonic devices, or I mean little devices like a nest, and that helped us remember what that. There was this Eutychianism, that, that meant something. I better quit talking because I can't remember this well enough, and I don't have my book in front of me. But by, I'm just trying to illustrate that Satan has always been introducing heresies. If he can't quit keep you from believing in Christ, he'll get you to believe in a Christ who's defined differently than the Bible does. Like we were looking at this Mormon material. All right? And so uh, these things are not uh, a waste of time. I've, another thing, for example, I've gotten emails from people that don't like the fact that I'm correcting error, and they think it's a... It's amazing, but there's a lot of people think that it's a sin to correct error. They literally do. They think it's a terrible sin to correct error. And how they come to that, I don't know. But one of the verses I saw somebody try to use to justify that opinion was found in Timothy where it says they wrangle over words. And so because I'm trying to define things biblically, I'm wrangling over words. And what they're saying is don't worry about words or what they mean. Just come and have an experience and it must be Christian. Is that what Paul meant? If you look in the bigger context of everything Paul said, that we, that we shouldn't have definitions of words, and that we shouldn't defi- try to find out what's true, that's an amazing claim that we shouldn't know what the truth is because we'd be better off being ignorant in our bliss, believing lies. Yes, uh, Kathy? Why are they worried about your words then? <laughs> I don't know. That's it. It's, it, it what, what these things boil down to is not trying to understand the author's meaning. It's just not even trying. And if you just try to read it in the context, read the whole... If you read all of Timothy, and how many times Paul emphasized sound doctrine in Timothy? Take heed unto thyself and thy doctrine. If you read that, you would never come to the conclusion when he says they wrangle about words, he means don't learn sound doctrine. Obviously, see, what these errors are is not even attempting to find out what Paul meant. Not even wanting to know. Um, Because, I I mean, it's just mind-boggling, frankly. So, the fact is that these, the only way you can identify a strange teaching is to be grounded in true teachings. But when you just say, why don't we just all get along and not worry about definitions, we, there's no possibility of not being carried away by strange teachings. So we can't even identify them. Yes, uh, Olga? There is a passage in the Old Testament where it says, uh, sons of Aaron with a strange fire. Is it not a parallel? They brought strange fire. Hey, that's a good uh, analogy. Remember they brought the strange fire. What happened? <laughs> they died. <laughs> Yeah, this, this isn't from God. It's a strange fire. 
So here we have strange teachings. I may have to repeat what some of you say, because with these fans going, I don't think even amplifying this, I can get it on the Internet. Because some of the people really like hearing what you say. And we lost our microphone, and I never got another one. So I'm, if I sound redundant, I'll try to repeat what you say, because with the fans, it's impossible. Yes, uh, Cindy. Yes, I... I, I it's like some of the stuff Dean Gotcher is talking about. You attack the language and redefine everything, and you can attack the culture. And so it's no surprise that, that, that of all things for Satan to attack, he's going to attack Christian Christianity and Christian doctrine, because that's the only thing that's a real threat to him, is the Christian uh, teaching, because that's the only way people find atonement. So... Uh, the, it's absolutely essential when you read anything. Well, if you get a letter from your grandmother, you read the whole letter so you want to understand what your grandmother's trying to say. Whether you agree with her or not. I mean, she's not an inspired writer. But that's just how you read. You always want to know what the author means. That's what human language is all about. Now, to somehow assume that when it comes to the Bible, it is some other kind of, because it's inspired, it operates under a different set of rules in ordinary language. That's not true. It is inspired, but it still follows the norms of language. God inspired real people writing in there in languages they knew to convey the ideas that he inspired them to convey. So the norms of language are still valid. And so if you want to know what Paul said, you read his epistle, and you try to, now we have a little extra work to do because he wrote to, in the first century and he's Jewish. So you have to go back and say, in the context, what did these people mean by these words when they used them this way? But it's all doable like we're doing today here in Hebrews to understand this. And that shows that you care what God said. But when you say, oh, don't wrangle about words, it doesn't matter. Does, let me tell you, let me tell you, it does matter. Does it matter whether evangelism means preaching the gospel, including who Christ is, the blood atonement, repentance and faith, or evangelism is making the church look attractive to the world so they'll want to come in their unregenerate state? Does it matter? It matters. Am I an evil person for saying it matters? Some people say yes. Bob, you're an evil person because you're saying it makes a difference what evangelism means. You're disagreeing with these people and look at all the good that they're doing. No, it matters what the term evangelism means. And, and what it means has to be, it's either going to be defined by Christ and his apostles or it's defined by our own culture, which is not a very reliable source. Okay, uh, Many years back I was listening to the radio and I was going to college. Christian radio, Christian pastors, young Christian accepting the word. And I hear Benny Hinn. And Benny Hinn tells me this. He says, I'm going to tell you something now that you've never heard in the Bible and you've never heard another pastor preach. Well, immediately, <laughs> immediately that was a red flag. For me. Yeah. And he goes on to tell about each person of the Trinity having its own Trinity. Oh, yes, that's a false doctrine. He wrote that in his book. Yeah. But the thing is that just because a person's on Christian radio or Christian TV or has written a book, the Holy Spirit lives within us. And if we hear something that we don't feel is quite right, or we haven't heard that before, we need to go back to yeah. the source before, okay. we, before we form it. Right, okay, let me repeat that. Um, uh, Dean was saying that when he was a young Christian, he heard Benny Hinn on the radio announce that he was going to teach something that none of them had ever heard before. And they had never read it in a Bible, or they would never heard another preacher preach it. 
Well, and Dean was saying right away, you thought something was wrong, right? Okay. Well, then what Benny Hinn went on to teach was that each person of the Trinity had their own Trinity. Remember, he got he wrote a book about that, uh, that, he, that each member of the Trinity had a body, soul, and a spirit. And, and it was a strange teaching. Well, it's also a false teaching. And he was, Dave Hunt just really rebuked him all over the place for that uh, false teaching, and some other people did. And I think they, I don't know if he ever retracted it or not. But your, your point is right. Well, of course you'd never heard it before, because it's a new lie that has been concocted, and you never find the Bible. Yes, Patrick. What about those who might use this verse to say, well, you're being carried away by these strange teachings because you're so concerned about them. Why don't you just teach the good teachings and... Yeah, I, I, I've heard that too. Um, just, uh, to repeat it, some people say, well, why are you, you're carried away by strange teaching because you spend all your time rejecting them and refuting them. Why don't you just teach only the positive and the good and don't worry about what's false out there? Well, the answer to that is this obvious, to do so would be to rebel against Christ and to fail to do the duties that we've been given as elders and pastors. And we talked about this here recently in Acts chapter 20. Paul instructed the Ephesian elders on the matter of sound teaching and the whole counsel of God, seeing that wolves will arise, not sparing the flock. So if you let the wolves take, take uh, aim at the flock and devour the flock, how's that being a godly pastor? We've been warned. We've been told. Uh, Timothy is, is told by Paul what to do about these things. And so my answer is, am I going to re- obey God or man? So the, the new purveyors of modern evangelicalism says, don't, don't correct any error. It'll all take care of itself. But the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible says, maintain the standard of sound doctrine. If I struck the elders in, in Titus, it says, I struck the elders about these things, and they, they must be able to refute those who contradict. All right? And so the question is, are we going to obey what God said for us to do, or are we going to let the culture tell us, well, that, yeah, but we're postmodern now, and nobody can know what's true and false, and everybody has their own opinion, and we're probably wrong about some things that we don't know we're wrong about. This is what McLaren says. I'm sure I'm probably wrong about some things I think to be true, but then you probably are too, and so is everybody else. And so because I think I'm right, and I'm probably wrong, but I don't know where I'm wrong, where I think I'm right, therefore, blah, 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 the answer is we can't know anything. You know? Uh, it's the little engine that couldn't. And so why even talk about it? Because nobody can know what's true. Well, the logical implication of that is we can't know whether the Mormon Christ is the real Christ or the biblical Christ. Because we might be wrong. Well, it's true, we might be wrong about a lot of things, but it doesn't mean we can't search out the truth by objective means. Yeah, Sam. So then, obviously the Bereans were including the New Testament for as an example for us to search the Scriptures and find what they actually mean, not to just disregard them and just, you know, Absolutely. The Bereans are exemplary because they were noble-minded. And so when interpreting narrative, you can find out whether something is a good thing or a bad thing, whether to be exemplary for a good reason or exemplary for a bad reason. And the Bereans were exemplary for a good reason, so we're right to follow. Anybody else? Um, Luann? Oh, Larry's first and Luann. Okay. Now, you're talking about authorial intent versus reader intent and, you know, the context of the whole council that uh, 
what they're doing is, is they're redefining, or like MacArthur says, is they're, they're using a different set of hermeneutics to fit in the box of what they want to justify and yeah. rationalize. Yeah, that's a good point. And, uh, uh, let me repeat it. There's a difference between authorial intent and reader intent. And if you took Ryan's class on hermeneutics, you, you learned about this. And uh, the, the, the subjectivist will say the reader determines the meaning. And so, and they include this in how they just do things. I know Gottscher talked about this too. If you still haven't seen the Gottscher DVD, I think you should. Uh, it's, 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 he calls it groupthink, if I remember right. It's sort of, you get together and a facilitator, who actually does have an agenda, but supposedly doesn't, but really does have an agenda. The facilitator gets the group together and puts this stuff out that's sort of leading you a certain way. And then they ask, what do you think and how do you feel? What do you think and how do you feel? And he, and Gotcha says that's exactly what Satan did in the Garden of Eden to Eve. Well, what do you think, Eve? Rather than what God said, well, Eve, just tell us what you think. How do you feel about God telling you you can't eat that? That's putting the thing back on the reader rather than the author. And so you read Romans 1, and somebody asks you, well, what does that mean to you? I would say, that's a really bad question. What it means to me is irrelevant. What's relevant is what it meant to Paul. And if what it meant to Paul becomes what it means, means to me, I just read the Bible and believed it. Let me give you an example. We were just talking about this earlier, Troy, and, and, and Denise brought up a story about somebody who was just getting what they wanted out of the Bible. The reader is determining the meaning, right? The, there's a church down here that uh, claims to be an evangelical Pentecostal church for homosexuals. Okay? And the way they interpret the scripture is that when Paul says in Romans 1 what he does against homosexuality, they interpret it to mean pederasty, pederasty being an abusive way that men used to have young uh, adolescent slaves and abuse them sexually. Okay? So they say we interpret it to mean that even though there's no contextual proof that that's what it means. And since we're not practicing that, at least most of them, uh, then there's nothing in Romans 1 saying that we need to repent. But see, what that is, is not making an attempt to understand what Paul meant. Let me give one that hits a little closer to home, and not to offend anybody, but somebody who had been influenced by a certain line of theology emailed me and said that, um, baptism isn't for Christians. And had read some, there's, there's a, a line of theology that I call hyper-dispensationalism that claims that Paul had a different gospel than Peter. And that Peter preached about baptism, but Paul didn't, so therefore baptism is ceased and Christians are not to be baptized because that was only a dispensation up until Paul came on the scene. And so I said, so I emailed back, I said, well, Romans 6, Paul talks about you were baptized into Christ, into his death, and raised in newness of life, buried with him in baptism. So how can you say Paul doesn't teach baptism? And the response was, well, that doesn't mean water baptism. That means spirit baptism. And I, and so then I uh, emailed back and I said, 
you have to try to understand Paul's meaning from Paul, not from these theologians who created this system. Okay? Now, as a matter of fact, I've looked, I just, I've never heard that, so I went and pulled out about seven commentaries on Romans to see if maybe that's a minority report. No, I couldn't find anybody who believed that. But I said, forget, forget the commentaries, just read it. There's an analogy buried is an analogy that corresponds to baptism, to be to be immersed in in the water, and the act of being baptism becomes an analogy for dying to the old life and coming alive to the new, and just the the wording in the context of what Paul's talking about would never give you the idea that means spirit baptism in Romans six, and so the point I said to the person was don't just follow these people's strange theology, that's to me is somewhat concocted. But what you have to do the work to find out what Paul meant. That's what it means to be a Berean. Does, does that make sense? So if Paul really meant water baptism in Romans 6, and then the, the, the other argument was in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. What Paul meant was he didn't believe in baptism at all. But again, if you read 1 Corinthians 1, there's no way that's his meaning. His meaning was, I'm glad because you guys are putting too much stock in who baptized you. And, and you're saying, I'm a Peter, I'm a Apollo, so on and so forth. So he's warning against a personality cult, not against the act of baptism. So my point is this, and you do the same thing with me when I'm teaching, or anybody, John MacArthur, anybody you listen to teach, it's good to have teachers, because it says so, uh, remember those who led you and spoke the Word of God to you, but it's only good in as much as they are actually helping you understand the Scripture itself. All right? And, and it's true what McLaren says, any one of us could be wrong, but the scripture can't be wrong. And, it, and, it's, and it's true. And so a Berean actually searches the scriptures. And what you're searching the scriptures for is to determine the author's meaning. And you use the best tools you have at your disposal to do that, including commentaries and people that can help you with the original language. That's how you do it. Yes, Luann. Mine feeds off Larry's totally because that is the whole thing. You know, we have the education system teaching kids what does it mean to me. We have judges that look at the Constitution that says what does it mean today. You know, it's nothing that goes with the original intent. And and it's okay if you get in a discussion with somebody that we don't have to have the pop answer because like you said, to be a Berean and back in the Word, it's going to take some work. And I'm going to have to get back to you on that answer because I want a solid answer. That's good, Luann. Uh, She pointed out that this this whole thing of what does it mean to me is being reinforced in schools even with the Supreme Court, and the, what, is, what does the Constitution mean to me? Now, what did the people who wrote it mean? Yeah, and so that's so the same attack against authority is being waged against the Constitution as is being waged against the Bible. Yes. Uh, there's a good verse in Second Peter. Okay, read them. Uh, chapter three, fifteen through about seventeen. See, and count. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Good. He used the word lawless. What was the passage again? Uh, 2 Peter 3, 
Okay, well, what was read was 2 Peter 3, 15 through 17. And it pointed out that people twisted Paul's, Peter said people twisted Paul's teachings. Uh, the ignorant and the unstable because they're not able to maybe have the tools or your willingness to find out what Paul meant. And so what people twisted. And the result is lawlessness. And I've been talking about that a lot lately. The Bible says sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is this. A refusal to stay within the boundaries God set. All right? And lawlessness can be expressed in two different ways. One of them is to erase the boundaries so there are none. The other one is to draw new boundaries yourself rather than having God's. You might even draw tighter boundaries than God did. And that's just as sinful. The Galatians were drawing tighter boundaries and Paul, and Paul rebuked them uh, as falling from grace. Others, like the Corinthian heir, they had bigger boundaries. They, they claimed the right to do all kinds of sin. That God says no. So lawlessness is not allowing God to have the right to draw the boundaries. But just think about what we're talking about. If, if the reader determines the meaning and not the author, there are no boundaries. How can you have boundaries if the reader determines the meaning? You can have a billion readers, you get a billion meanings. And if the norms of society, however perverse they may get, determine what's right or wrong, then you don't have a constitution. Because the readers determine the meaning. Well, the, just certain readers, the Supreme Court readers. Well, we decided that it's a living document. Well, they, the, the new theology does the same thing with the Bible. The Bible is evolving just like the Constitution is. Um, so it, it, we're not wrangling about words in the sense that Paul is warning against in Timothy, but we're working our best using what the best tools God has given us to know the author's meaning. Now, I've had people say, if you use commentaries, that's really sinful. And if you read a New American Standard Bible, that's really sinful. And all you can do is get your King James Bible and read that and nothing else, and that's all you're allowed to have. But what they're saying is, we don't want you to learn the meaning of the Bible. Okay? If you don't understand this, then I guess you just don't understand. We don't care if you don't understand. And you can't use any tools. You can't try. You can't study. Now, this is false piety. It's not pious to refuse to read scholarly commentaries. It's not pious. It's not spiritual. It's not holy. It's just saying, whatever ignorance I have, I want to keep it. Now, if God raises up teachers in the church, not, they're not lawgivers, they're just teachers, like this William Lane, whose commentary in Hebrews is just par excellence, um, who have the ability to read the languages and have access to all this material, background material, so they can put these things in context for us and give good, solid reasons why they, they give the interpretation, usually mentioning what other interpretations have been proposed and saying, here's why I think this one's better. That's giving us access to this process. It's empowering us to know the Bible. It's empowering us to be Bereans. It's helping us know what did God say. And um, Lane, for example, in this verse we're studying about the foods, gives page after page of page of quotes from Jewish sources about what they believed about foods to help us understand what the author of Hebrews was warning against. They had a certain belief about foods that he's saying isn't correct. And he demonstrates what it is. But, but so 
as Bereans, we should have as many tools as we can get. Now, that doesn't mean every single member of the congregation is going to get a, a degree in theology or every member of the congregation is going to learn Greek and Hebrew and everything else, but I would believe every member of the congregation would want to get as many tools as they can to be Bereans. And that they want every member of the congregation has the same hunger and desire to know what has God sent. We're talking about hermeneutics here, uh, Ryan. And um, we're studying Hebrews 13 and verse 9 about these strange teachings. And we are talking about the fact that we need to have access to the true teaching and to be able to interpret Scripture to be able to identify what a strange teaching is. We were talking about this on the way back from Paul. Whenever Bob and I are in the car, we're talking, we're talking theology. theology. Either that. We talk golf for a little ways and get on to theology. <laughs> the interesting, the one, one thing that I always say is, there's so many people that have the mindset of, well, I just want the Bible and that's it. You know, and, and, and on the surface that's fine. <clears throat> and it seems noble to say that. And indeed we want to be in, you know, this Bible's a sole source of, of, of authority for us. However, if we ignore what other people have written and what other people have done, what we're doing is we're taking ourselves out of the body of Christ. We're basically, all these gifts that God has given other people to be able to do, to be able to think, to be able to say these things, we're taking ourselves out of the body of Christ rather than in the middle and letting ourselves be refined by all right. the teachings and all exactly. the others have given. So it's really, we have to be in fellowship. Absolutely. And so it's sort of a denial of the need for fellowship and for need for one another. And I like having people around like Ryan and uh, other people that have these tools to bounce these things back and forth like we do because we're trying to understand. And if somebody asks me a question, I don't just say, this is the answer, thus says Bob. <laughs> I, I give you scripture, and you know that if you have anybody here who's emailed me, Luann's done that. Before I ever met you, she was emailing me theology questions before they were coming here. And I send back reason. Here's the scripture. Here's some of the issues. Here's what different people have said. Here's why I believe this is right. But uh, that's how you learn. That's how you grow. But in this process, we're saying one thing that we're trying to do. What did God say? Back to the Garden of Eden. Hath God said? That's what we want to know. And if he has, then we know the answer. Okay? And we're not asking, what do you think and how do you feel? We're not asking that question. I mean, it's okay to say what you think, but if you do so, you, in this class, that's fine, but you better realize there's a bunch of people going to get their Bible out and see if that makes sense or not. <laughs> okay. And, which is okay. I, I can be corrected. Everybody can be corrected, but it's going to be from the Bible. And so I think the most worthless kind of so-called Bible study that they have in the church today, if you get around, you read some man's material that's not even taken from the Scripture, and then everybody says how they feel about it. Well, I feel this way, I feel that way, I read the Purpose Driven Life, yeah, I feel like I need more purpose in my life. Blah, blah, blah. And what do you leave with? Nothing. Nothing. You could have just as well watched soap operas. You get just as much spiritual benefit from it. Yes. Maybe that's not true. I don't know. I mean, well, at least you know it's not from God, right? Okay. In Nehemiah, when Ezra got up and read the law, there were a whole list of other men who helped them understand. And so they read distinctly from the book, 
in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So they used very good point, Denise. You get the best uh, star for having that comment. <laughs> that was very good. If you didn't hear, what what's the passage of Nehemiah? It's in Nehemiah eight, and basically it's the whole chapter. Nehemiah chapter eight. They got out the words of God and read it and gave them meaning, and that was. So they helped the people understand it because they hadn't had this. They were in so many years of apostasy. This is part of how they rebuilt their their uh, worship, true worship of God was to train the people from the law so they could understand it. Good point. Outstanding. Nehemiah chapter 8. Here's a term that maybe you might agree with that goes right along with your thinking. Uh, it's called trajectory hermeneutics. I've seen it written where... You know, where the standard of the canon of the plumb line, the scripture is always going to maintain a standard. But because, you know, over time and different, you know, schools of thought that as the, the learning curve, as you will, go up, yeah. they complete what the Bible may leave off that they consider or finish something off. But it, it somehow Okay, that would, be, that would be have to do with the implications. Remember the uh, categories that Ryan taught you? Right. Okay, and it would be true that throughout history, implications are brought out. And they can be seen to be valid or invalid. And I would say as it's not always true because sometimes the whole church can be wrong for thousands of years. Uh, it's a rare thing, but it, there's a, I would, don't give up on getting a better understanding because we've seen that even in the last hundred years where people came with better understandings that eventually most people agree with. But on the whole, if... For example, the, the doctrine of God is described in the Nicene Creed or the definition of Chalcedon. As, as a general rule, it's not very good to depart from that. Because if it's been studied and read and studied and read, not just the Creed, but the Scriptures and whether these articulations are good definitions of Christ, and if it's been, been held by the entire church throughout church history, most likely, if you're departing from that, you're going into heresy. But not because of the authority of the church, but the authority of Scripture, and that the church has seen valid implications and held to them. Does that make sense? Would you agree with that, Ryan? Meaning never changes, but implications and significance move throughout history as the Word of God, because it has to do with the situations that you find yourself in. Exactly. But the meaning never changes. So, you know, as more people come to the church, if indeed that's what happens in the future, I think we maybe have to just offer this hermeneutics class at least once a year for anybody new that came or didn't get it, because that empowers you to be Bereans, to understand hermeneutics. Yes, Kathy. I was just going to say, when I was a young Christian, everyone was telling me to get off my medicine, trust the Lord for my healing. I thought I that was a false teaching that was going around that if you have medicine, then you're not a good Christian. Yeah, see, uh, Kathy was just saying they were telling her to get off your medicine, get off your medicine, then God will heal you. But uh, there was an evangelist that went to this camp that we, that we used to have back in the 60s and 70s, and this healing evangelist came, was preaching that, and he said, if you have glasses, you're not a very good Christian. And uh, so there was a channel out there by the lake. And so everybody went out and threw their, at least most of the people, they all threw their glasses in the channel claiming they're healing. But the funny thing was the next day you should see all those people out there fishing in the channel trying to find their glasses so they could drive home from the camp. 
<laughs> Bless God, I'm healed. <laughs> I'm confessing. So, yeah, that's why strange teachings can, can harm people, and uh, we need to have our ability to, to discern. I think that, that we have to have a real life quality also, but we also need to place ourselves on, on our tutelage of uh, wise teachers like the eunuch and the Ethiopian eunuch did. This is when they asked him, Are you going to understand your readings? Yeah, that's a good illustration. The Ethiopian eunuch had Isaiah 53, but he's trying to couldn't understand it. And God sent a man of God out to explain it to him, and he was converted. So God does use teachers, but the scripture is what give him the authority to teach that. Okay, thank you. Very, very interesting. We didn't even get into this passage, Harley. I haven't even started to scratch the surface on this, but uh, so we'll just call this one Hebrews 13:9a. <laughs> And next week we'll study Hebrews 13, 9b. God bless you. We'll see you upstairs.